Hello, and welcome to Planet Watch, big solutions to Earth-sized problems. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman. And I'm Joe Jordan. And today on the program, energy efficiency is just the start of reducing our dependence on fossil fuels. We'll talk with energy efficiency expert Len B.A. and also Peter Dreckmeyer, the former mayor of the city of Palo Alto and an environmental champion, talking about how to work the legislative system and the activist system to make change toward the positive in the environmental field. All of that to come and more right here on Planet Watch. And we have a podcast you can subscribe for free by going to our still fairly new website, planetwatchradio.com. And if you want to get in touch with us or ask our guests a question, write to radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. Or you could go on Facebook and see us live. You can see Joe's latest Hawaiian shirt with some turtles, turtles on lots it. Of turtles. Um, and you can also comment there, and we'll read your questions on the air to our guests. So keep that in mind because it goes fast. But first, a couple of stories for you in the news with our interns, Maya Rodriguez and Tommy Martin. Maya, what do you got for us? Researchers in Sweden have developed technology that can generate electricity not only from the sun, but from the shade as well. Using tiny metal antennas to absorb sunlight and a polymer that responds to temperature changes, scientists at Linkshaping University have developed an optic generator that converts sunlight fluctuations into electricity. This development began back in 2017 when scientists used small metal antennas, each one a fraction of a micrometer in size, to absorb sunlight. Now scientists have combined those antennas with a polarized polymer film. The antennas are heated up by the sun or cooled down by the shade. Then that change in temperature moves the charges within the polarized polymer, generating an electric current. Scientists hope to one day use the natural fluctuations between sunshine and the shade created by trees to harvest energy. How cool is that? At first, that sounded to me like an April Fool's story generating solar energy from shade. But it's the change. It's the change that's the key thing there. I think that one's real and Ma pretty interesting. I think we're going to have a vote after the newscast, and you can decide for yourself which ones have veracity and which are bending the truth. <laughs> Scientists at the University of Perth have discovered a rare species of bottom-dwelling giant worm, which measures three meters in length. The worm, which has a patch of orange pigment on what would have been its head, has perplexed scientists. It spends most of its time eating detritus from the ocean floor and acted aggressive toward researchers. The worm was observed twisting itself into knots to avoid capture and puffing up when exposed to bright lights from underwater cameras. Researchers have named it Slimebagia trumpii for its resemblance to the U.S. president. The fake so-called president the United States. And now Lanbier has a story for us. In morning services in morning services at the Vatican for Easter Sunday, Pope Francis this morning surprised celebrants by declaring that Easter is a pagan holiday. More on that later. More on that. Do stay tuned. And I have to point Joe. out that uh, it turns out Easter and April Fool's, uh, last time that coincided was like 55 years ago. So uh, anyway, happy April Fool's and happy Easter, everybody. Indeed. And the banning of certain words by White House appointees in the pocket of fossil fuel companies has caused some grammatical confusion and consternation among researchers studying the English language. In Florida, where the government has banned the term climate change, one official was forced repeatedly to use the phrase 
the issue you mentioned earlier in an effort to avoid using the taboo words. The U.S. Department of Agriculture's Director of Soil Science, Bianca mobius Clune, was has banned the use of the words global warming and climate change adaptation, instead replacing them with strange weather and extreme never-before-seen-in-human-history wildfires run for your lives and massive crop failures due to what we do not know. Well, interesting. I've got a, a, a story along those lines, which I wish were an April Fool's story, but uh, it's uh, yet another thing. There, there's been the temperature record, which is pretty inexorable. A whole lot of sciencey people like to quibble and say, well, it's not really, uh, you know, rising steadily. There's been this so-called pause and all this stuff. And a lot of that's been debunked. But one thing you cannot debunk is the really inexorable sea level rise. There's an island where the United States ends down in the Gulf of Mexico. You can go out, you can still go for maybe another decade or two out two miles along a causeway with waves lapping high along both sides out into the Gulf of Mexico to the, it's, it's spelled Isle de Jean Charles, but I'm sure it's pronounced Ile de Jean Charles. <laughs> That island uh, has uh, a bunch of people living there, most of whom are members of uh, the Choctaw uh, Native American tribe, and they are all going to be having to move. Uh, the state of Louisiana has officially decreed that by X time, they all will have to leave that island because the government can't be responsible for their safety anymore. Uh, one more hurricane could completely do it in. In uh, the year 1955, there were uh, 22,000 acres of land there on which people could live and do various things. Now there are 320 acres of land there. So, um, you know, interpret that if you're at all skeptical about, uh, you know, the effects of uh, climate change. And, uh, well, we can all try to figure out where's that climate change coming from. There's a Heavy evidence that, yeah, we're, we're part of the reason, maybe, maybe the whole reason, maybe more than the whole reason. And thus, though, the good news is that maybe we can do something about it if, if we act very quickly and wisely. And they're going to explain that the reason these people moved by saying what? If, if they go to Florida, they can't talk about why they're there. They can just say they moved because oh, yeah. it's a better view. Uh, but Tommy Martin has a story for us next, and then we're going to go to our interview guests. Yeah, just a short one. The... The Trump administration is expected to roll back Obama-era greenhouse gas emissions and fuel economy standards. The goals were created in 2011 to boost the average fuel economy for all new cars to 55 miles per gallon by 2025. With California as a leader on this issue since the 1970 Clean Air Act, the state has worked with the federal government to help set higher national standards. Since automakers don't want to set separate standards for different parts of the U.S., they have been lobbying for this move to force California and the 12 states that have followed their lead uh, to set, uh, sorry, <laughs> uh, the 12 states that have forced its lead to lower their standards. Um, Scott Pruitt, the head of the EPA, has sent a 16-page proposal to the White House for approval, but said that specifics would be released later this year. Pruitt has previously suggested the higher standards pioneered by California would force car manufacturers to stop selling the vehicles some Americans love most like large SUVs. Right. Well, thank you for that story. And uh, by the way, the stories that we chose today um, were chosen partly, only partly, based on their proximity to the date April 1st, just so you know.
Yeah, that last one, uh, you know, it's kind of like everything is no, you know is wrong. Didn't Cheech and Chong say something about that? You know, this last story that Tommy told us uh, is an example of something I don't hear said often enough. It's, maybe it's so obvious it goes without saying, but the people in power in the U.S. now are doing exactly the opposite of what we need done on almost every single thing you can think of. Uh, we need human, the best of human nature and real heroics, and instead we're getting the exact worst in, in what might it only tangibly be called human nature. And that's so anyway. why we have Planet Watch. So thank you for joining us on Planet Watch because we talk about solutions to some of the world's most vexing problems. And the two people we have assembled with us today um, couldn't be better choices than to lead us through some thinking, deep thinking, about what we might do about some of the mess we have created for ourselves as human beings on this planet. And we're going to start talking about energy efficiency and then probably broaden the conversation to a lot of other topics uh, because they know about those things. One of our guests is Len Bier. He is the former energy coordinator for the Buildings Division of the County of San Mateo. He moved into the private sector in 1984 as an engineer for an automatic temperature controls company in Silicon Valley where he performed energy audits and programmed automatic controls up into the late 80s. He worked in the co-generation industry and then held positions in the energy saving performance contracting industry, analyzing commercial and industrial facilities to identify efficiency improvement opportunities. He's been an independent consultant performing energy audits since 2006. He is very, very uh, engaged with the idea of savings, uh, energy savings by design in buildings, both commercial and residential, but it looks like mostly commercial. So that's our first guest. Welcome to Land BA. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Our other guest was mayor of the city of Palo Alto. So we have two people from Silicon Valley with us today. He was raised there in Palo Alto, and he says he was raised on Hetch Hetchy water, which is still a good thing um, because it's the best water in the world. He has coordinated several successful land use initiatives, including the Devil's Slide Tunnel Campaign, a campaign to protect the Stanford foothills from development, and a campaign to retire Palo Alto's sewage sludge incinerator. He was on the city council and served as mayor, and he will find out what he's doing now. What are you doing now, Peter Druckmeyer? Thank you for being here, by the way. Well, thank you. Great to be here. Uh, I work for the Tuolumne River Trust, and the Tuolumne drains the northern half of Yosemite. Uh, that's where the Hetch Hetchy Reservoir is. When people say that our water comes from Hetch Hetchy, we point out that that's like saying our food comes from Safeway. It's really coming from the Tuolumne River. And the river flows, uh, beautiful white water run, we call it the champagne of rafting in California, floats through the foothills there, and then provides a lot of irrigation water in Stanislaw County. And so we're working to try to improve flows on the river. We've got some great opportunities right now and still dabbling in a few issues in Palo Alto. Uh-huh. So Palo Alto is known as a pretty green city. We want to ask you how these things are playing out in sort of a real world uh, aspect um, when we talk about energy efficiency in particular and of course some of the other things you brought to the table as mayor. Um, I want to talk to Len because he's here and we're going to start talking about energy efficiency. How big of a dent in the problem <laughs> that we're talking about, global warming, but other problems as well like air pollution, can we make by making buildings more efficient? 
Well, buildings are just a, a start, um, but it happens to be the area that I've worked in the most. Um, buildings account for roughly half of the energy use in the United States. Um, much of that is, you could say, indirect through uh, the electricity consumption in buildings because power plants themselves consume a lot of energy that never makes it into the wires. That is, the efficiency of converting, um, say, natural gas, if you're burning natural gas, into electricity by your every time you convert one form of energy to another, you're going to have some losses. And our technology kind of limits how much we can constrain those losses. So uh, average power plant in the United States has an efficiency of only 30%. Really? And that's up from what it used to be. 30%? And it's gradually increasing by fra fractions of a percent. So when we say coal-fired power plant, we are talking about 70% of that coal pollution going for nothing. Just up in, up in smoke. Literally so up in smoke. <laughs> up in heat into the atmosphere and also up in, up in smoke. The, and the amount that's actually converted to electricity is from the conversion of that chemical energy in the coal to heat, the heat to mechanical energy, and the mechanical energy to electrical energy. At each step of that conversion, you have losses. And um, particularly in burning coal, which, as you can all imagine, is a solid fuel, the efficiency of burning it can only be pushed so hard. Um, our efficiency of burning natural gas, for example, has improved greatly in the last 20 years. Um, natural gas power plants, if you look at them by themselves, have gone from an average efficiency of about 30% to an average efficiency of about 40% in that time. That's an enormous increase, and they, they are better. Um, the combined cycle plants, which are sort of the industry standard these days in electrical generation, are around 50% efficient. Um, but that's, you know, particular to the ease of using a gaseous fuel. Wow. And my sister works for EPRI, and I didn't even know that. <laughs> EPRI is uh, EPRI, Electric Power Research Institute. Just got to say, in case you're wondering, how do you get electricity from burning stuff? It's what I call burning and turning. You, you burn coal or oil or natural gas. That flashes water to steam, which then blasts through a turbine, spinning a generator, which then makes electricity because of the relative motion of wires and magnets. So there you go. <laughs> when you see that giant smokestack on the power plant, that's all the extra stuff we could be capturing, but we're not. Right. And the other place you don't see is on the condensing side because of any, any heat engine type power plant, whether it's fossil fuel fired or nuclear powered, is essentially using heat to create steam. And the steam is driving a turbine, as, as Joe pointed out. But then to make it really work, they have to reuse that fluid over and over again, especially in nuclear power plants, because if they kept putting it once through, you'd have a lot of radiation in the atmosphere. But in, it has to be a closed cycle. So they have to condense it back to liquid. And the condensing in most places, in the, most power plants in the United States, use water for condensing. Um, for those of you who are in the uh, geographic area of KSCO, the nearest power plant is Moss Landing, and it dumps the uh, water, the ocean water that's drawn in to serve as a condensing fluid to condense the steam back down and heat exchangers is, is thrown back out into the estuary at Elkhorn Slough and warms up the slough. Hmm. So there's always these costs. You said 50% um, of our electricity is used in buildings. And if we could attack that, that's 50% of our energy use, total energy use in the United States or worldwide? 
That's pretty typical of industrialized nations. The exact percentage varies from country to country, but it's right around half all through the EU, so Japan. There's a lot of savings to be had there. So we're going to talk Enormous. about how we can wring it out of that 50%. And I got a couple more 50s for you. Uh, I think our guest last week, Lisa Heshong, who's an expert on energy efficiency and lighting, I think she said that 50% uh, of the buildings that will exist in 2050 have yet to be built. <laughs> so, you know, like half, we've only got, <laughs> we got to build half again at least, or maybe the whole amount of buildings we have in the ground now. Maybe Lynn has that one. I think uh, she was right. also saying we had to rebuild some of them. So that the yeah. good news is we're not going to just double the number of buildings <laughs> no, no, on no. the earth. We would be covering up a right. huge amount of earth if we did that. So how do we make them more efficient? What's the best way? What's happening? What's the latest? Well, there's enormous potential in new construction, and a lot of that is um, is things you might consider quite obvious. Um, which way your windows are facing, how insulating the materials that you build the building out of are, how efficient the lighting is, what kind of mechanical systems you, may, you might use for heating, air conditioning, um, even things as simple as the refrigerator in your kitchen, which for most of us, at least in the coastal climate, is our largest electricity user in the house. Um, there are enormous advances going on in the design of all of these types of appliances. Some of them are being pushed by regulation. Some of them are just happening because the market is calling for it. Um, when I look at existing buildings, the choices are much more varied and unpredictable. Um, existing buildings, of course, right now constitute the vast majority of the the use we're looking at. Um, and uh, I can throw out some examples later, but generally I kind of like to use that old journalism adage, who, what, why, where, when, and how, which if in journalism you're supposed to say those things in the first sentence or two of your article so people know where you're going and what it's about. When you're investigating energy use in a building or an industrial plant, you need to know who, what, why, where, when, and how that energy is being used in order to figure out, wow, look at all the opportunities, literally like $100 bills lying around on the floor. Um, I worked on, um, fairly recently worked on a chemical plant in the Midwest, and I was given the constraint of a 30% return on investment. That is, whatever they spent to save energy, they had to make 30% in savings of the value of what they spent to save it. Um, with that constraint, we were able to identify over $300,000 per year of savings. And this was in the Midwest, where the price of electricity is literally half what it is here in California. So the potential is enormous. And the opportunities vary a lot from very simple things like, when are you using the energy? Do you need to use it then? Where are you using it? Do you need to use it there? Who are you using it for? Are they there then? <laughs> what are you using it for? Does it need to be given for that? How are you using it? Could you do it a better way? <laughs> and why of, are you using it? <laughs> oh, you mean server rooms don't have to be 70 degrees anymore with modern server equipment? Holy cow, that's an enormous savings. So the opportunities are virtually endless, but they're absolutely unique in every project. That is, at least the mixture of them is unique. 
We're talking with Len Bayet, and I'd like to bring Peter Druckmeyer, the former mayor of Palo Alto, into the conversation. Peter, what did uh, you do when you were in the city council and as mayor of Palo Alto to earn such a high green rating as a city? What what can policymakers do to make what Lynn just said happen more readily? I mean, I understand there's a motivation for companies to save money, so maybe you don't have to do a lot. But my guess is there's other things that would nudge the process if it were a policy. Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, one of the main reasons I ran for city council was following the reelection of George Bush in 2004 and I realized we're not going to see any groundbreaking environmental legislation under this administration so I thought you know if the if the cities lead maybe the the state and the country will follow so I ran in 2005 and got elected and we had a, a great city council very green I think the fact that I had been a lifelong environmentalist and I got elected sent a signal that the community really cares so that gave us a lot of uh, strength as we were moving forward on projects and in my first year, 2006, our mayor, uh, she created a green ribbon task force to look at climate change and mitigation. And, and so we had a wonderful group of folks from the community, from conservation groups, from staff, from some of our elected officials, and came up with over 100 recommendations for what the city could do. And that evolved into our climate protection plan. And Palo Alto currently, we have our own utility, so we have a, a lot of flexibility there. And 100% of our electricity is qualified renewables, so solar, wind, and landfill gas. And it's actually quite a bit cheaper than PG&E in neighboring communities, so that's a nice selling point. And <clears throat> we have reduced our greenhouse gas emissions by 40% below 1990 levels. And our goal is to reach 80% below 1990 levels by 2030, so far ahead of the state. Wow, that's pretty great. <laughs> um, did you receive any opposition from anybody, or was it just free sailing? It was, I think all the votes were unanimous, and it was just a wonderful time. We also approved a zero-waste initiative and a green building initiative, and we banned single-use plastic bags and polystyrofoam polystyrene. And one thing that was kind of fun, my, my last act as mayor was to write a resolution that we as a community um, acknowledge that there are externality costs in fossil fuel use. And these are borne by society or future generations. And they make the price of fossil fuels artificially cheap. So we also embrace the concept of true cost pricing. And it was basically a, a statement, but people bring that resolution back to the city council. I know some folks are trying to get the council to pass a resolution uh, in support of a carbon fee with the dividend being returned to consumers. So pick up some interest from people who are concerned about their pocketbook, but also charge something closer to the true cost of fossil fuel and take away that subsidy. I wanted to ask you, you know, you're not on the city council anymore, but how do you see this current administration and how do you see cities, like you say, leading if the federal government won't? Are you watching the mayors and the cities do the same thing and trying to pick up slack for climate change and other things? Yeah, and the state. I mean, we're fortunate in California that we have a, a, a very good governor when it comes to climate change. And there's a lot of focus on reducing greenhouse gas emissions, but also adapting to climate change. There was a, 
a wonderful conference in San Mateo County on Friday about what we might expect from bay level rise and what's the approach for addressing that and looking at one water that we're not just thinking about flooding but also water supply and groundwater and recycled water so there are some really great things happening on the peninsula right and lynn you've been a part of that too because you worked over there for years do you want to talk about um, some of your projects in that part of the world well you're going back to ancient history here um <laughs> yeah with uh I was privileged to work um, in the buildings division in San Mateo County because I was very green at the time, and I don't mean green in the sense of environmentally uh, advanced. The ears. Um, Young. <laughs> and uh, I worked with people who understood the systems and the buildings that they maintained very well. And so um, while I had, you know, some some theoretical engineering knowledge and some some exposure to uh, other people's practices for improving efficiency. Um, it was very much a, a steep learning curve for me. Um, and because I had people to collaborate with and to get feedback from, we were able to uh, work together to save quite a bit of energy. And this is in a time when the technology for energy saving was not really any different than it had been in, since 1945. Um, you know, this was in the beginning, 1980, essentially, when I started. So <clears throat> um, we were able to save a lot in, in lighting and in controls. And we also did some system conversions. Um, you know, we changed constant air volume systems to variable air volume systems. Um, I'm sure some of the judges in the courtrooms are still mad about that, um, but <laughs> um, but we were able to make some significant progress in energy use, and and I know that the work continued on long after I left. Um, where where it's really changed in the last 15 years is the technology is is enormously advanced. Um, there's a lot more tools available to save energy, but just to take some statistics from um, the Alliance to Save Energy. Um, they found that energy efficiency is the nation's greatest energy resource. We saved 57 quads, that's quadrillion BTUs, in 2012 due to energy efficiency and conservation efforts taken since 1973, which for those of you who were uh, around back then, remember, was the first disruption in oil supply to the United States. This is more energy that that 57 quads is more energy than we get from any single energy source, including oil, natural gas, coal, or nuclear power. The Alliance to Save Energy estimates that if we tried to run today's economy without the energy efficiency improvements that have taken place since 1973, we would need about 60% more energy supplies than we use now. That's really interesting, yeah. and, and I wanted to give that context and have you explain to me in just a moment, um, how wh how our energy use keeps going up, even though we're getting more efficient, and maybe that's what Joe was. Well, we have up. a couple of amazing and very accomplished uh, environmental heroes here, and uh, I don't think we've given out our email address. If you want to get in touch with us during or after this show, and email either of our guests a question, 
uh, email radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. And just a couple little fun notes. Uh, Lynn and I went to Cuba together to a solar energy conference, an international solar energy conference in 2002. And I took a picture of him sitting next to, they love John Lennon down there. And there's a statue of John Lennon on a park bench in Havana, Cuba. And uh, I took a picture of Lynn sitting with his arm around the shoulders of that statue of John Lennon. If any of you emails us a request, we'll re remind us, we'll post that picture <laughs> on the web. And also, uh, Peter uh, has gone and uh, learned how to become a professional river guide. And uh, I've been on the T, that's river rat lingo for the Tuolumne River, a couple of times. Once was a yoga and rafting trip. And the other time was with Peter, where he was holding forth on, you know, the value of saving rivers and the virtues of the Tuolumne. And uh, you should get with Peter and go on one of his trips, maybe this summer. He's and let me, uh, Let's do it. let me invite my two interns here for Planet Watch to join us as well if they have questions. Maya or Tommy, just raise your hand and jump on into the conversation and we'll send you a microphone. We'll turn it off before we swing it over your way. So um, think about a question if you have one. Um, what about that question, though, that um, I asked before Joe went on a tangent about John Lennon? <laughs> <laughs> and other things. And other things, which he's known to do. What about the idea that our energy use keeps going up even though we're getting more efficient? Right. What, what is driving that? Cars? Um, well, it's, it's a lot of things. Um, one of the things is more, more miles traveled, but that more miles traveled is almost exactly offset by improvements in efficiency um, in, in automobiles. And we've also had population growth. We've also had an enormous growth in what we call gross domestic product, which is that number that counts how many dollars change hands. Um, not a very good measure, I don't think, of economic well-being, but it is certainly a measure of economic activity. What we see is that our energy consumption per capita, that is per person, has actually gone down a little bit since, oh, call it early 90s. And there are, of course, dips and slides if you graph that, but that's a general overview. And our share of energy as a total portion of our, uh, all our expenses has also gone down. That's more true in other countries, uh, other industrialized countries, such as the EU and Japan, Australia, than it is in the United States, but it is true in the United States as well. One of the things that keeps driving it up, however, is we're still in a consumer economy where we keep adding stuff. So we all have things now that we didn't have or might at least be thinking about acquiring things now that we didn't have and weren't even available 30, 40 years ago. And every time there's some new thing out there, it either uses energy directly or takes energy to produce it and get it to you. And it's that continuing dependence on consumer items and that monetization of everything that we have in our lives that continues to drive an economy that's very dependent on fossil fuels. And it would take much more time than we have on this program to explore the connections of that. But there are incredible historical and international connections around the use of fossil fuels and how it has intertwined with economic growth and um, really the whole sort of structure of political economy in the world. 
And I do want to talk about that, and I think we would all be interested in talking about this, especially from the cultural perspective, that from the day we're born, we kind of advertise, too, that if you don't have more stuff or the latest thing, you don't have status or love or whatever it is you're being advertised that you need. We talk about this a lot in my mass media classes. I start out by saying, I hate to tell you this, but you don't need most of that stuff. And it's clogging up our world and causing horrible pollution and other things to happen, including global warming. Um, people look at that next thing, like the next version of the iPhone that they must have in isolation, not from a lens of thinking about what Lynn B.A. just said, which was that it's using up our energy and our space and our resources at well, a great rate. And there's also consuming experiences, not just buying stuff and adding stuff, but running around a whole lot, consuming experiences. I mean, we all know how fun some of that can be, but maybe it's a very good question about how much we're doing that to excess and how much this holy grail, sacred cow of economic growth. I'm hoping some economists are out there listening. I really want to challenge you. I, my take on it is that this economic growth that we're all led to believe is essential for our future is mostly a way of making a relatively few people at the top even richer at the expense of everybody else living in perpetual debt debt you know like uh, hamsters on a wheel just having to keep churning to keep money flowing up towards the top tell me if i'm wrong about that that this is i promised some friends that we'd go deep on this conversation we got a couple of really wise almost elders here i'd kind of like to get your take on watch it there on that they're wise anyway <laughs> well i'm the oldest of us all so <laughs> full discl disclosure there what do you say when people say you know we can't stop growing that's 70 percent of our economy look what happened during the recession when we stopped growing mm -hmm. well the growth argument i'll leave for another day but just looking at energy use per capita um, the united states as of 2014 which is the numbers i'm looking at right now our energy use per capita was at least twice what it was in countries like england japan italy and almost twice what it is in Germany or France. Now, if any listeners have been to any of those countries, I would ask you, do you think their quality of life is only half as good as ours? And that's really the issue. How much energy do we need to live well? And how big of a house? How much do you have to heat it? Uh, those are, when I went to Argentina, people lived in what we would call tiny homes. But they didn't think of it that way. They had fold-up tables in the kitchen so they could use the kitchen as a living room. They had tiny little spaces that they used five different ways in these very efficient, cute little compact things that they did. So to me, they were living very happily, but I had never thought you could do that. But they had it all figured out. Kind of like being an astronaut on Spaceship <laughs> Earth, you know. Yeah. How about you, Peter? What, what's your thought on all this? Well, you know, there's a formula that came out of Stanford, which is human impact is a combination of population, affluence, and technology. So more people has an impact. Uh, the standard of living that we have and then how we get the goods and services to ourselves through the technology. And I think we've done a pretty good job on technology, but when, uh, you know, from the time that the Ehrlichs, um, Paul and Ann Ehrlich wrote uh, the population bomb, which was 1968, the human population has doubled on the planet. In the Bay Area, the population has doubled in my lifetime. So it's keeping pace with the global 
population growth. And there's a, a plan right now called Plan Bay Area, which was required by state legislation that metropolitan areas such as the Bay Area have to come up with a plan and forecasting that will reduce per capita uh, emissions from vehicles. But they're forecasting that between 2010 and 2040, we'll add 1.3 million jobs and bring 2 million more people to the Bay Area. So the question is, you know, do we have the water and other resources for that many people? So the... It, it would be likely that per capita vehicle emissions would decrease, but the sheer population growth would mean overall uh, growth in greenhouse gas emissions. So that's an issue we really need to pay attention to. Yeah, if everybody's kid gets a car at 16, that's going to mean more cars on the road. There's just the math is there. That's a big if, though. They do have BART, and we don't in our area. Some places have a subway system, some don't. So there's some big decisions to be made. And, you know, you raise the issue of, the Ehrlichs, their predictions of, you know, we would be starving by the 70s did not really come to pass. Ne neither did Malthus Malthus's mm -hmm. prediction. Um, and in fact, population growth is going down, but it's going to level out about 3 billion more than where we are, according to current trends, going down to 2.6 children per couple, which means you're still a little above replacement levels. But then when you consider mortality and other things you, you're almost in balance so um one of i'll try to find this article and post it because it actually had some hope it said that once populations get used to culturally having two kids per couple they don't usually go back to 10 and if they're urbanized they don't need to have eight or 10 kids to help in the farm so there are some positive trends but the the predictions about growth didn't yield the same dire circumstances mm -hmm. because we kept coming up with more ways to grow more food. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, they, the Ehrlichs chose the wrong me metric, but had they chosen something like climate change, uh, we would see that there's that impact. It doesn't mean population isn't an issue. <laughs> it just means they, they were looking at food, not not guesses, yeah. Hey, I got a question uh, for Peter. Uh, City of Palo Alto, I know that it uh, achieved some landmark that was... Uh, put out there, I don't know, a year or so ago that it had become the first and at that time only city in the country to be, by some method of counting, 100% uh, renewable for its electricity. Uh, can you tell us how that works and, uh, you know, it probably involves renewable energy credits, which are have been a bit controversial, but... I think maybe in your case you've worked that out. Tell, mm -hmm. tell us more about that. Well, we uh, made a commitment to, to look for uh, renewable energy, and we put out a request for proposals and came back with some solar contracts at uh, six cents per kilowatt, I believe. Kilowatt hour. Kilowatt hour. And uh, we were able to meet most of our electricity needs through these contracts. We do have a program with our sister city of Oaxaca, Mexico, where we purchase renewable energy credits uh, in the form of preserving old growth uh, forests down there. So it's a nice gesture to help them out and it helps us meet our 100% goal. Very cool. We, if you just joined us, are here on Planet Watch speaking with Len B.A. and Peter Druckmeyer. Peter Druckmeyer is the former mayor of Palo Alto, a city here in California, if you're listening in Ohio and haven't heard of it, in the heart of Silicon Valley near Stanford. And Len B.A., who is a longtime energy efficiency expert who has made hundreds of thousands of reductions of um, kilowatts in various buildings around uh, the world and continues to do so. 
is talking to us about how that one thing can reduce huge amounts of energy use. And by the way, I saw the phone ringing a little while ago. Although this station is set up to take calls, we don't generally do that on this show unless it's by prior arrangement. But you can reach us today or later at radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. So uh, do keep those cards and letters coming. <laughs> and we're getting down to uh, about the last quarter of the hour here. So if you want to uh, interact with us, do it quick. Do it before the show's over. It's always fun to have last-minute questions, but sometimes we can't work them in. So I would ask a general question to round out our interview here. How are you feeling about the future, both of you? To start with you, Len. That's a big question. I'm going to restrict my uh, speculation about the future to just the area of energy for the moment. Um, and for some reason, I'm feeling moved to jump to the past at the same time. Uh, there was a little story at the beginning of the news about uh, um, Pope Francis declaring Easter a pagan holiday. It is interesting how Easter jumps around on the calendar. Like, it's very hard to predict. You have to know when it is because otherwise you wouldn't be able to figure it out. Well, now you can figure it out. It is. It falls on the first Sunday after the first full moon after the spring equinox. And it is the same pattern as used for Passover, the Jewish holiday, which is the first Friday after the first full moon after the spring equinox. But why is it called Easter? It comes from Esther, which was, or Ostara, which was an Anglo-Saxon and before that an old Germanic uh, goddess of spring. And you know, things like decorating Easter eggs, like why eggs? Why bunny rabbits? They are incredible embodiments of fertility. And spring in the Northern Hemisphere is all about fertility. Well, spring in the Southern Hemisphere too, but it happens on the opposite side of the year. So this bursting forth of fertility is really important. And if we go even further back, we know that people in indigenous cultures generally uh, deify what feeds them. And most of us think of spring as a time of bounty. And of course, in nature, nature is not efficient. The blossoms on a fruit tree are absolutely profligate. The eggs laid by fishes far outnumber the number of adult fishes that are ever going to survive from those eggs laid. But in technology, we have other concerns. But I think it helps to reflect and to get some perspective thinking about this. Why rabbits? Springtime for traditional people in the Northern Hemisphere is not a time of bounty. It is the time when your supplies from the previous fall's harvest and gathering are starting to disappear. And there's not much new growing yet. But rabbits are in abundance, relatively easy to snare or hunt in other ways, and can keep you alive until the other foods really start to come in in abundance. So there is a reverent value there. And these things, um, decorating eggs goes back to at least ancient Egypt. So these traditions that we have going on today go way back in human history, and I think it helps to reflect that we've been through great challenges and hard times before, and our ancestors, in fact, 
in my opinion, were heroic in their ability to survive some of those challenges. We now have a challenge to completely transform our energy economy. And the potential for energy efficiency is not at all exhausted. Um, the uh, economic potential, according to uh, one study, um, shows that in industry, we've only hit about 40% of the potential. In power generation, only about 20% of the potential. And the same in buildings. And in transportation, about 30% of the potential. We have enormous great potential. Some of you may have heard that um, solar and wind already employ far more people than the coal industry does. You may not have heard that uh, a study done last year found that the energy efficiency industries, it's not really an industry, the people working in energy efficiency already number at least 1.9 million people in the United States. And the demand for more people continues. I have maintained my independence of not working for large corporations for uh, a number of years now, and I still get headhunter calls because the companies that do energy efficiency work are still looking for people who know something about how to do it. You so you if that. you're <laughs> looking for a career direction and you're at all, let's just say, mathematically inclined and can see things in three dimensions, you're probably a great candidate. Go for it. What a great pitch for any and all students listening today or people who want to go back to school for a second and career. And for the resurrection of the, some of the energy programs we've offered in the past and will again in the future at Cabrillo College. <laughs> you hear that, Cabrillo students? Mm -hmm. And what about you, Peter? What's your thoughts on um, the near and long-term future, given the reflection we just heard about how resilient nature and humanity can be when challenged? Mm -hmm. well, I'm sometimes asked um, about approach to motivating people. Do you motivate them through fear that, you know, there's this crisis and we've got to act, or through hope that, hey, we can make a difference. Yeah, there's a crisis, but there are um, solutions. And my feeling is to be honest, you know, not try to manipulate with one way or the other. And the truth is, I think the world is going to be worse off by the time I die than when I was born. But my goal is to try to help it be a little bit better than it would have been if I weren't here putting my time and energy into it. So my goal is to give future generations a fighting chance because we are an incredibly resilient species. And unfortunately, we don't have great leadership at the national level right now. But I'd love to see the Pope Francis stepping up and really talking about morality and the environment being a, a moral issue. So I think that there's going to be some pain and suffering, probably quite a bit. But I think the species will persevere in probably smaller numbers. And maybe some of the indigenous cultures will be able to survive the changes. Maybe some wealthy uh, cultures that are really focusing on appropriate technology. Um, I, I wish I could see how it plays out. I think it's going to be quite interesting. Yes, being a fly on the wall for the next two or three hundred years. Interesting time. Interesting, and, and yes, that's a Chinese our, curse. <laughs> both of our guests have kids, right? Uh, at least one or two for each of you. Grandkids for one, right, Len? Yes. And, uh, yeah, when we've been speaking with Len B.A. and Peter Druckmeyer, they are both deeply involved in the environmental field in different angles, and some of those angles have crossed over here today on Planet Watch. And um, it's just been amazing to just tip of the iceberg conversation with both of you to hear what your thinking is on ways forward and opportunities that maybe we haven't really addressed to the fullest extent that we could. So that that's a hopeful thought 
right there just to, to end on with you guys that there's there are lots of things we can do and will be doing that may or may not involve the federal government. <laughs> and the key term there is tip of the iceberg. I sort of look at this as just a, an initial reconnaissance mission on the potential, well, not only for the world, but for each of these guests, because we're hoping that someday in the future, you know, months down the line, we'll have each of you and maybe both again. I, I kind of wanted both these folks to come together just because they'd never met, and it, it's really fun to get great people together and watch the sparks fly. That's, that's one of my favorite things. So uh, We didn't see but, too many, like, conflicting sparks we saw a lot of synergy <laughs> we well. yeah just Good colorful fun sparks you know <laughs> rainbow sparks and speaking of fun i mean i usually try to end this show with what i call oddball stuff you know just uh, interesting sort of random things uh last night i uh, hope you were out looking at that moon and by the way i don't know if you've ever we talked about rabbits wabbits and bunnies there's the bunny in the moon which when it's near full and you can see it again tonight if it's clear you will see this left profile of a bunny rabbit facing to the left it's the dark patterns on the moon the frozen lava and it looks it looks just like a bunny complete with an easter basket or else maybe it's the drum for the uh, energizer bunny but check that out and um Last night, uh, March 31st, April Eve, was the night of the second blue moon in the same year. <laughs> now, a blue moon is just a whimsical thing. It doesn't really have anything to do with physical. There are blue moons, which are indeed rare because of atmospheric phenomena, but I can talk about that later. But the official sort of de definition of a blue moon is the second full moon in the same calendar month. Well, even more rarely than that, do you get two blue moons in one year? We had one in January, and then we had the one last night. So I now hereby decree, for the first time these words have ever been uttered in the history of the world, that the second blue moon in a calendar year should be called the purple moon. So there you go. Yeah, you know that. You heard it here first. Yeah, yeah. A few years ago on Halloween, it was the second new moon of a month, and people were saying, "Oh, this is the black moon." Well, that's a good name for the second new moon of the month because you can't see the new moon. But I'm saying, okay, if you have two blue moons in one year, I don't think you can have three. Some listener out there, correct me. I don't think it's possible to have a third blue moon in the same calendar year. But the second one I'm going to call the purple moon, which is what you were looking at last night. And you might see still traces of it tonight, a little bit less than full. Um, and then, um, well, let's see here. Another thing about months and calendars. Uh, we're going to have one of my favorite days coming up in a week and a half. So get ready for it. It's a Friday the 13th. And an interesting little fact, which uh, might sound amazing at first, but not really, it's pretty trivial, is that any month whose first day is a Sunday, such as this month, is going to have a Friday the 13th. <laughs> Just think about it. Tell me if I'm wrong. Um, <laughs> um, now, on to more uh, actual substantial, substantive sky stuff. Uh, some of you may have been noticing a brilliant light, a brilliant, beautiful light a star-like thing only brighter than any star in the western sky in recent evenings. I was talking to somebody yesterday who said, oh, I thought that was a plane. <laughs> Anymore, it's not all that fun. You think everything's an airplane. There's so many airplanes, especially in urban areas. Well, anyway, this thing that's out in the west gracing our evening twilight skies now, and it's just roaring higher and higher every night for, for the next several months. It will become so bright in mid to late summer that you can see your shadow cast by Venus it's Venus uh, in a dark place. If you're away from artificial lights, you'll be able to see a shadow cast by Venus, and I would be able to show it to you 
at like 1 p.m., 2 p.m. Just get a hold of me. If you want me to show you a planet in the middle of the broad daylight, which I guarantee you 99.9999% of you have never had that experience, you'll be able to do that late this summer. So uh, I anyway. have a quiz for yeah, you. Yeah, okay. How long has April Fool's been being celebrated? Anybody know? Oh, yeah. When did that start and how did it start? I was kind of wondering why do they choose April? It's starting to get warm. <coughs> People are starting to get kind of... Feeling tricky. Yeah. Well, some historians speculate that April Fool's Day date back, dates back to 1582 when France switched from the Julian calendar oh. to the Gregorian <laughs> challenger, uh, calendar as called for by the Council of Trent in 1563. I guess they had a lot of power, the Council of Trent. So <laughs> check that out. Um, they actually made it a regular thing in England in 1700 <coughs> as people began to play practical jokes on one another as we did, not practical jokes, but informational jokes. Slightly earlier in the program, you might have noticed a few news items that were of questionable or mixed repute. Yeah, some today you got to take some of the things we, we said earlier with a grain of salt or some pepper or, or both. <laughs> hey, I got one last little quick riddle going out for you. This one's going to require some thought. It's easy enough to figure out which way the Earth rotates. You know, if you say you're looking down on the North Pole, is it rotating clockwise or counterclockwise? Just figure out time zones and who gets the sunrise earlier. You can figure that one out. But now how do we figure out which way the Earth goes around the sun? If you're looking down on the North Pole, is the Earth orbiting the sun, you know, on its yearly revolution, uh, counterclockwise or clockwise? Well, I'll give you a hint. The stars rise four minutes earlier every night. A given star that rises at, you know, say 9 o'clock p.m. tonight, tomorrow night it'll rise at 8.56, the next night at 8.52. That information alone can help you figure out which way we're going around the sun in our orbit. So you'll have to give them the answer next week on Planet Watch. This has been Planet Watch for another edition. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman with Joe Jordan. Keep an eye on the sky. And thank you so much to Michael Zwirling and Patreon for supporting this program. This is Planet Watch.